Welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. On this episode, we'll be covering another short-lived distributor from the 1980s, one that would only exist for less than two years, but was still able to release one true movie classic, Associated Film Distribution. That was their fanfare you just heard there. Associated Film Distribution was a British-based film distribution company set up in the late 1970s by ITC Entertainment and EMI Films to distribute their films in the United States. ITC, the Incorporated Television Company, was formed by then-Sir, later Lord, Lou Grade in the 1950s. Aware of the potential to sell British television shows to American networks and independent stations. And he was right. Amongst the ITC shows that would become beloved on both sides of the Atlantic would include The Saint, which would make Roger Moore a worldwide star, Thunderbirds, The Patrick McGowan shows Danger Man and The Prisoner, Space 1999 with Martin Landau and Barbara Bain, and The Muppet Show. Sir Grade would move into movies first helping to finance The Return of the Pink Panther, followed by Farewell My Lovely with Robert Mitchum, The Boys from Brazil with Gregory Peck, and the Ingmar Bergman movie Autumn Sonata. But most of these movies didn't do very well in the United States. Sir Lou Grade believed that his films had failed in the U.S. due to poor distribution by the American studios, who were only receiving a small distribution fee for the movies. So Sir Grade teamed with his brother, Bernard Delfont, who was the head of EMI Films, to launch AFD in 1978 with $40 million in capitalization and the aim to distribute 12 movies a year. The initial slate of films AFD scheduled to produce and distribute included the story of Marie Callas, directed by Franco Zeffirelli, The Wife, from director John Schlesinger, Vengeance, starring Sophia Loren, The Golden Gate, based on the novel by Alastair McLean, Two movies based on Robert Ludlum novels, The Gemini Contenders and The Scarlet Inheritance, a Stanley Donnan film called French Vanilla, a sequel to the not-hit film Movie Movie, two musicals from producer Alan Carr, including an adaptation of the then-hit stage musical Chicago, and a World War II drama called Eleanor Roosevelt's, um, the plural version of the N-word which was to be directed by Stanley Kramer and based on the real-life, mostly black, 761st Tank Battalion who were allowed to fight in the war thanks to the effort of the First Lady's campaign to allow African Americans to serve in combat rather than be regaled to menial jobs. But none of these films would ever get made, or at least at the time of history with this company. AFD's first film was Firepower, which hit American theaters on Friday, April 13, 1979. A widow indirectly leads a mob hitman and his partner to a billionaire recluse in the Caribbean. The richest and most powerful man in the world. No one knows what he looks like, where he is, or why he's killing people. The only clues to his identity are a few personal habits like his drugs, his fondness for sadistic games, and his appetite for magnificent women. It would take a miracle to capture him. We're back. A miracle called Jerry Fannin. Jerry Fannin. He's retired now, 
guard Dick or Simpson. And retire him. Only Hyman can do that. So, ask Hyman. I don't want to abuse this thing we have. It's a contract. The fee, a million dollars. Inflation. Anyone ever tell you what's wrong, Miss Steve? I'm just redistributing the wealth, man. <laughs> what brought you back? Got a gig. Behind it? Yeah. Could use some help. Money's taken. Hey, I don't kill people. It's a grab. Firepower. Here, let me help you with that. When I take my earrings off, I go to bed. <laughs> I think she's quite a threat. I think she's quite magnificent. The power of desire. The power of courage. The power of force. Crime. Evil. Protection. Law. Firepower. The U.S. government doesn't know where he is. We were closing in, but he left the States. The mafia wants him. I'm beginning to think Stegner may not be on the island. And no one has what it takes to find him. I'll get Stegner for you. The film stars James Coburn, Sophia Loren, O.J. Simpson, Eli Wallach, and Vincent Gardenia, and was directed and co-written by Michael Winner, who also had made Death Wish, and Death Wish 2, and Death Wish 3. But he also made Wonton Ton, The Dog Who Saved Hollywood, and the 1978 adaptation of Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep with Robert Mitchum as Philip Marlowe. But as you can probably base from the first three films I listed from the director, this is a big, dumb revenge action movie full of bad kills. There's a video on Daily Motion that tallies up the number of people James Coburn kills in this movie. That number would be 24 people who are shot, stabbed, set on fire, or just plain blown up. The film didn't do very well in theaters, only grossing about $2.5 million. You can stream it for free on Amazon if you're a Prime member, or you can probably find it on DVD for a buck at the local Goodwill. And from that trailer clip, you definitely heard O.J. telling James Coburn he doesn't kill people. The second release, arriving in theaters on June 6th, was Escape to Athena. This was one of those British war movies with an international, quote, all-star, unquote, cast, that popped up in the wake of the success of A Bridge Too Far. But instead of Richard Attenborough directing Sean Connery and Michael Caine, Anthony Hopkins, Gene Hackman, and Robert Redford, you have George P. Cosmatos directing Roger Moore, David Niven, Telly Savalas, Richard Roundtree, Elliot Gould, and Sonny fucking Bono. And instead of James Bond being one of the heroes of the story... You have James Bond playing a fucking Nazi running around a POW camp on a Greek island. And of course you know how it's going to end because every damn British movie about POWs in World War II ends the exact same way. David Niven only agreed to do the movie because his son, David Niven Jr., was one of the producers of the film, and it was being shot on the same locations where he filmed Guns of Navarone years earlier. While William Holden shows up for a brief cameo, 
presumably as his Stalag 17 escapee, Sergeant Shefton, because he was visiting his girlfriend, Stephanie Powers, who was playing a USO stripper being held at the POW camp. This film bombed when it was released, making less than $2 million at the box office. Although Lord Grade claims with all the international pre-sales he made on the film, he didn't really lose any money on the production. You can also watch Escape to Athena for free on Amazon Prime. Their third movie would be their sole huge hit. For your consideration, the nominees are for Best Actor, The Lovers, The Dreamers, Kermit the Frog. I may not be one of your fancy Hollywood frogs, but I deserve a chance. Best Actress, Did you mean it? Miss Piggy. I'll, I'll be right back. Waka, waka, Best waka. Supporting Actor, Fozzie yeah. Bear. Uh-huh. That does it! <laughs> And for Best Picture, The Muppet Movie, starring Charles Durning and Austin Pendleton. Special guest stars, Edgar Bergen, Milton Berle, Mel Brooks, James Coburn, Dom DeLuise, Elliot Gould, Bob Hope, Madeline Kahn, Carol Kane, Cloris Leachman, Steve Martin, Richard Pryor, Telly Savalas, Orson Welles, and Paul Williams. Showtime! The Muppet Movie. More entertaining than humanly possible. This movie was a no-brainer for AFD. The Muppet Show was produced by ITC Entertainment and was a huge worldwide hit almost right from its first airing in September of 1976. Within three months of the airing of that first show in Britain, The Muppet Show was airing in more than 100 countries worldwide. And within a year, Jim Henson and his team were working on the logistics of making everything Muppet Show writers Jack Burns and Jerry Jewell had come up with for the first Muppet movie. And I'd like to stop here for a moment and give a quick appreciation to Jack Burns, the comedy legend who passed away three weeks ago on January 27th. Jack Burns first came up in comedy as part of a team with George Carlin, and then he found even bigger success when he teamed with the legendary Avery Schreiber, recording several best-selling comedy records and appearing on countless television shows. They even had their own variety series on ABC during the summer of 1973, the Burns and Schreiber Comedy Hour. While he transitioned from performing to writing and producing in the mid-70s, Jack Burns continued to work in front of the camera. Burns was the host of the first episode of Saturday Night Live to actually carry that title in 1977, as it had been known as NBC's Saturday Night during its first two seasons because ABC had a Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell on the air during 1975 and 1976. Burns was also a writer and the announcer for the early 1980s ABC sketch comedy series Friday, where he helped to create the famous sketch where Andy Kaufman broke the fourth wall, refusing to say his lines, which would lead to an on-screen fight between Kaufman and Burns. Jack Burns was a legend, and his passing really didn't get the attention it deserved. So wherever you are, Mr. Burns, thank you for all you did for comedy, and I hope that you and Andy and Avery and George 
are having a blast. Okay, let's get back to the Muppet movie. You know that opening scene where Kermit is sitting on a log, singing Rainbow Connection? No movie that used puppetry had ever attempted to have a puppet character perform on screen in what appeared to be a fully autonomous body. Even when you watch the pre-movie episodes of The Muppet Show, you really only see the Muppets from the waist up, because that's how puppetry was done at the time. Henson and his team needed to come up with a way to make it look like Kermit was really sitting on that log, singing his song and playing the banjo. And of course they did. They created a metal tube that Henson would lay in, big enough to hold him, and a video monitor for him to see what the camera was seeing, along with a space for his arm to come out to articulate the character as he sang, and a breathing tube so Henson would not suffocate in that tube. And it worked far better than they could possibly imagine. It's that specific scene where Kermit was no longer just a puppet, but a someone or something that was real. I've heard stories from film writing colleagues about how, as press days for variant Muppet movies have come up in the past decade, where adult men and women would break down and openly weep when they got to meet Kermit the Frog for the first time. They're so filled with joy in meeting this icon of their childhood. The movie went into production in New Mexico around Labor Day of 1978 and would premiere in British theaters at the end of May 1979 before arriving in the United States three weeks later. Like the television series, the Muppet movie featured a wealth of talent in supporting roles, which would help the movie break out of just being another kiddie movie. The $8 million production would go on to gross more than $76 million in the United States alone, making it the 10th most popular movie of that year, and nearly $100 million more around the world. It was also nominated for two Academy Awards, Rainbow Connection for Best Song and Best Original Song Score. It would lose the former category to a song from Norma Ray, a song I guarantee you have never heard once if you haven't seen the movie, and lost to all that jazz in the latter category. There would be two more Muppet movies from this group of performers, The Great Muppet Caper and The Muppets Take Manhattan, but neither film would come close to matching the success of this movie. And what do you follow the Muppet movie with? Why, a Charles Bronson crime drama, of course. Love and Bullets, which hit theaters on September 14th, which would find Bronson as an Arizona cop who is sent to Switzerland to bring back the girlfriend of a dangerous mobster so she can testify against him. Any guesses on who plays the girlfriend? Anyone? Anyone? If you didn't say Mrs. Bronson, Jill Ireland, you just don't know your Bronson movies, as Love and Bullets would be the 13th of 15 films the couples would make together. Anyway, turns out the Molt doesn't really know anything useful that will help put her boyfriend away, but the boyfriend wants her dead anyway. And of course the cop and the Mole fall in love, and my God, I'm already bored talking about this film. Maybe it would have been better if John Huston had directed it, as he was supposed to do before he got too sick to continue. Veteran director Stuart Rosenberg who had directed Paul Newman in Cool Hand Luke in The Drowning Pool, was brought in, but it's clear that Rosenberg's heart wasn't in this film. He would bounce back later in the year with the Amityville Horror, but this movie was DOA from the get-go. This one, if you're interested, 
can be seen for free on the streaming site Tubi. For Thanksgiving weekend of 1979, AFD served up the G-rated Arabian Adventure. Christopher Lee stars as an evil magician who seeks to gain power by obtaining a magic rose. A peasant boy and a prince join forces to stop him. The film also features a pre-Cheers and pre-Empire Strikes Back John Ratzenberger, veteran British character actor Miles O'Shea, and was the feature debut of Emma Sands, who would find fame a few years later as Fallon Carrington Colby on Dynasty and the Colbys. There is also what was dubbed special guest appearances by longtime Lee cohort Peter Cushing, Pink Panther star Capuchin, and Mickey Rooney as a crazed demon builder. I have a near encyclopedic mind for movies. My wife regularly calls me the human IMDb for my ability to conjure up obscure factoids about almost any movie that had any kind of theatrical release in the past 45 years. Yet, I have absolutely no memory of this movie, and I cannot find any box office information about this film. It doesn't look like any streaming service has it available at this time, but there were DVDs and Blu-rays created for it, so it's not completely unavailable. After Arabian Adventure, AFD unleashed Lee Majors in the Piranha knockoff Killer Fish. And it didn't just unleash Lee Majors and Karen Black and James Franciscus in a knockoff of a Jaws knockoff, but made it their Christmas movie of the year. The movie is best known today as one of the films the MST3K gang royally skewered during their 2018 return season. It's a horrible film that I only remember because I saw it at the same drive-in in Long Beach that I saw Lee Majors' previous crap fest, The Norseman, a year earlier. I never had good luck seeing anything at that drive-in. They tore it down a year later. It's now one of those industrial office clusters. But if you're going to see Killer Fish, stick with that MST3K version. It's at least mildly entertaining that way. In an isolated sector of our solar system, suspended in orbit around the sixth planet from our sun, lies a distant outpost, a technologically perfect world where mistakes are impossible, because the impossible is unthinkable. It is called Saturn III. year for 22 days, a solar eclipse plunges this outpost into shadow lock. Total darkness. All communication is terminated. This year, the inhabitants of Saturn III are about to experience the unthinkable. A nightmare so perfect Major, this is my partner. There are only four inhabitants on Saturn III. One of them is not human. 
Now, if any post-alien wannabe sci-fi horror hybrid had any chance of being a good movie, Saturn Three was the one that had the best chance. You've got Kirk Douglas and Harvey Keitel starring in a film directed by Stanley Donnan, whose directing credits included such inarguable classics as On the Town, Singing in the Rain, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Funny Face, Damn Yankees, Charade, and Two for the Road. You have a screenplay written by Martin Amos, the son of legendary writer Sir Kingsley Amos, and an award-winning novelist in his own right. Yet despite this pedigree, Saturn III is a real piece of junk. First, you have to sit through an hour and a half of Harvey Keitel having all of his lines dubbed over by British character actor Roy Dotrice because producers were too worried about Harvey Keitel in space, sounding like he just stepped out of the Franklin Avenue Fulton Street subway station in bed Then you have extended scenes of Kirk Douglas and his love interest Farrah Fawcett doing things to pat out the running time like tripping out on space acid that has nothing to do with the storyline. Because, quite frankly, there really isn't much of a storyline. Two lovebirds hang out on a space station outside of Saturn, who become unwitting hosts to a space scientist and his horny robot, who finds a way to put himself back together after being dismantled so he can keep trying to bang Farrah Fawcett. This movie is bad. Really bad. It's not even worth sitting through for a one-second nipple slip of the one-time Charlie's Angel. Roger Ebert ended his review of Saturn Three as such. This movie is awesomely stupid, totally implausible from a scientific viewpoint, and a shameful waste of money. And he went on to say that if Lord Grade was going to continue producing films with standards this low, I think they ought instead, in simple fairness, to simply give their money to filmmakers at random, the result couldn't have been worse. If you want to judge it for yourself, it is also available to watch for free on Amazon Prime. In March 1980, AFD would follow up one of their worst movies of the year with one of their better ones. The Changeling was an effectively creepy supernatural horror film from director Peter Medak whose 1972 movie The Ruling Class is a true masterpiece you should seek out immediately. Well, after you're done with this episode, at least. If you've never seen it. The Changeling would star George C. Scott as a music composer from New York City who moves to a Victorian mansion in Seattle after his wife and daughter are killed in a traffic accident. Shortly after moving in, he starts to hear strange noises in the house, which leads him down a rabbit hole of unspeakable horror as he discovers what is the cause of the disturbances. The film also stars his then-wife, Trish Vandiver, and Melvin Douglas in his penultimate movie role. The film would earn back 20 times its $600,000 budget, and it would win the very first Genie Award, the Canadian answer to the Oscars, for Best Picture. Scott and Vandiver would win the Foreign Actor and Actress Genies, and would also win for adapted screenplay, art design, cinematography, sound, and sound editing. When asked to create a list of the 11 scariest movies of all time a few years ago, Martin Scorsese would put The Changeling in the number six position, ahead of The Shining, The Exorcist, and Psycho. Now, remember a moment ago when I said Saturn 3 was really bad? 
Well, it still is. It's really, really bad. But it would not be AFD's worst movie of the year, not by a long shot. That dubious honor would go to their June release, Can't Stop the Music. It's the musical extravaganza that launches the 80s. It's Alan Carr's Can't Stop the Music. You can't stop the music. Once you see it, you'll know why you can't stop the glamour. Do the shake, do the shake, do the shake. Stop the excitement. You can't stop the dancing. Now, making a musical about the founding of the village people as the 1970s were ending and the 1980s were beginning would not have been the worst idea a film company could have. Sure, disco music was on the decline in popularity, but when the film was going into production in the summer of 1979, the village people's most recent album, Go West, had been a top ten album that had gone platinum. That would probably be the best part of the entire process. First, producer Alan Carr decided that, based on his success on the movie Grease, that he would now co-write the screenplay for the then-titled Disco Land, where the music never ends, himself. And despite living his life as an out man and the village people's reputation within the gay community, it's strange that the final screenplay would be scrubbed clean of any references to that community. And then Carr hired veteran character actress Nancy Walker, who, while having some experience directing television sitcoms, had never directed a movie before, let alone a big-budget movie musical. And then he hired such musical luminaries as Steve Gutenberg, Valerie Perrine, and the then-Bruce Jenner to star. Produced at a cost of $20 million, which would be around $67 million today, the film would, would gross just one-tenth that amount. The film would be honored with seven nominations for the first-ever Raspberry Awards, the most of any film that year, and it would be named the worst movie of the year and also, quote, win, unquote, for worst screenplay. Nancy Walker would never direct again, and that she would continue to be featured in a series of bounty paper towel commercial ads that she had started a decade earlier and would continue for another 10 years. Bounty's the quick pickle-upper. AFD's fortunes continued to fall just a few weeks later, when on August 1st they would release Raise the Titanic. Now remember that Sahara movie about 15 or so years ago, which featured Matthew McConaughey as a renowned adventurer Dirk Pitt? Raise the Titanic would be the first time a Dirk Pitt adventure would be brought to the screen. But instead of the McConaughey, we have Richard Jordan as the former U.S. Navy officer turned clandestine CIA operator. For this adventure, 
Pitt had to locate the Titanic, which, before its maiden and only voyage, had been loaded with an extremely rare mineral called byzanium, which the Soviets are looking to obtain in order to overtake the Americans in the nuclear arms race. The cast is decent, including Jason Robards, David Selby, Ann Archer, M. Emmett Waltz, and Sir Alec Guinness. But the director was Jerry Jamison, whose previous film, Airport 77, was another waterlogged disaster. The film would be nominated for three Razzies, including Worst Picture, Worst Screenplay, and Worst Supporting Actor for David Selby, and would end up grossing less than 20% of its $40 million budget. The movie was so bad, the author of the novel that it's based on, Clive Custler, would not allow any other movies to be made of his books for another 25 years. And then he sued the producers of Sahara for a breach of contract when he was not given the absolute control over that book's adaptation that he had been promised. AFD would release two movies in October of 1980. The first was Alan Moyle's Times Square, which stars Trini Alvarado and Robin Johnson as two troubled teenage runaways from opposite side of the tracks in New York City, who, with the help of a Times Square DJ played by Tim Curry, start their own punk band called the Sleaze Sisters. Robert Johnson is exceptional in the film, and it's kind of a shame she never broke out. She would go on to play a small role in Martin Scorsese's After Hours, but her last role would be in the Dennis Quaid, Meg Ryan remake of DOA. Director Moyle came up with the idea for the movie after he found a mentally disturbed young woman's diary buried in a second-hand couch he had purchased, which detailed her life on the streets. The film has developed quite a cult following over the last 40 years, but it was not very successful when it was released in the theaters. The $6 million movie would end up only grossing about $1.4 million. Those who would like to see how much New York City has changed since the early 1980s will find this movie a fascinating time capsule. And, as I publish this, no major streaming service carries it, but you can find a fairly decent full movie copy of it on Vimeo. Halloween weekend 1980 would see the release of another Charles Bronson action drama, Borderline. Bronson plays Border Patrol agent Jeb Maynard, who is charged with tracking down the killers of a young Mexican boy, and Jeb's friend and colleague, played by Wilford Brimley. The film also stars Ed Harris and Bruno Kirby in some of their first substantial film roles. According to the director, Gerald Freeman, the movie was originally supposed to star Gene Hackman as Jeb, and Michael Douglas was set to produce. But when the final draft of the screenplay was delivered, Gene Hackman quote-unquote retired from acting, and Michael Douglas removed himself from the project, claiming he didn't want to make, quote, a Charles Bronson movie, unquote. So the new producers listened to the Oscar-winning producer of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and got Charles Bronson a star. Borderline was also the first motion picture to tackle the subject of illegal border crossings, beating the Jack Nicholson movie The Border to theaters by more than a year. The film was made with the support of the U.S. Border Patrol and the INS and used patrol agents as technical advisors. But this level of realism didn't help the movie get seen by audiences. After a month in theaters, Borderline had only played in about 300 auditoriums in five southwestern states and barely earned back half its $5.8 million budget. 
This one can also be seen for free on the streaming site Tubi. By this time, Lord Grade was getting tired of losing money, so he did something that I don't think any modern distributor has attempted before or since. AFD released three movies on the same day, December 19, 1980. The first movie was the Richard Donner drama Inside Moves. The film stars John Savage as a man who partially cripples himself during a failed suicide attempt, who now spends a lot of time hanging out at a local neighborhood bar filled with what writers and producers and directors like to call interesting characters, which in this case means other disabled people. Jerry, the bartender, played by David Morse, has a bad leg but still dreams of playing professional basketball. When he ends up narrowly losing to a player from the Golden State Warriors in a scrimmage, even with that bad leg, Jerry ends up getting the money from the Warriors players who attended the scrimmage to get an operation, and, after healing, gets to live his dream of playing pro ball. With a screenplay co-written by the then-husband-and-wife writing team of Valerie Curtin and Barry Levinson, who themselves had been Oscar-nominated the previous year for writing the Al Pacino movie and Justice for All, Inside Moves would get nominated itself for Diana Scarwood's blistering portrayal of Savage's character's girlfriend. And it would see the return to the screen of Harold Russell, the World War II vet who had the unique distinction of winning two Academy Awards for the same role when he starred in The Best Years of Our Lives in 1946. However, Inside Moves would end up being a little too quirky for then audiences, and it quickly disappeared from theaters. But it's a really well-made and superbly acted film. You can rent it off of Amazon, Google Play, or YouTube for $3. The second movie released on December 19th was The Jazz Singer. In concert, he is played to sold-out crowds wherever he has appeared. On record, he has sold more than 50 million copies. As a composer, he has written songs recorded by virtually every major star. And now, he brings his unique talents to the motion picture screen. In his first starring role, Neil Diamond is the jazz singer. The classic story of a man torn between family I have things inside of me. I have to express them. I have my music. I have my life, my feelings. And fame. I just don't want to go through life thinking I could have been. Between what he is expected to do. You can change what has always been. I love my father. I'll never do anything to hurt him. But I'm going to L.A. with you or without you. I am going to L.A. And what he was born to do. Love on the rocks. It ain't no big surprise. Those are palm trees. Just pour me a dream. Just welcome to California. My lies. Yesterday's gone. Now all I want is a smile. There could have been a good movie here. Neil Diamond in the late 1970s had charisma to spare. The jazz singer was a dated but well-known piece of intellectual property that really could have said something about 
an artist trying to survive in two diametrically opposed worlds. It could have said something about the conflicts that arise between fathers and sons. It could have been many things. But when one of the tenets of making the film is keeping one of the biggest problems of the original film intact, having a white man perform in blackface, that kind of tells you the filmmakers didn't quite grasp the possibilities of the story. Diamond is a passable actor, in part because Laurence Olivier steals all of the oxygen out of every scene he's in as Diamond's cantor father, but Diamond would never get another chance to star in a movie. He might have sold tens of millions of records by the time the movie was released, but his fans didn't come out and support the movie as well as they could have. The film did end up grossing $27 million versus a production budget of $14 million, but the soundtrack, buoyed by three top ten songs in Love on the Rocks, Hello Again, and America, would be more profitable for Diamond's record company than the film would be for AFD. The soundtrack would go five times platinum. It's not a very good film, although Caitlin Adams, who starred in The Jerk alongside Steve Martin the previous year, is really good as Diamond's put-upon wife. I bought the soundtrack for my mother when it came out, and I've probably listened to those three songs a thousand times over the past 40 years. I still have them amongst the 10,000 songs on my iTunes playlist, and I still listen to them regularly. I know it's cheesy as hell, but I really and totally unironically love the song America. If you want to watch The Jazz Singer, you can rent it from most services for $4. The third movie released by AFD that day would be The Mirror Cracked. After the success of 1974's Murder on the Orient Express and 1978's Death on the Nile, the producers of those films wanted to do something a little different. Why not try an Agatha Christie mystery with a female sleuth? Margaret Rutherford had played Miss Marple in a series of entertaining movies in the 1960s, but that character had not been seen on screen since 1965's The Alphabet Murders. The producers would hire Angela Lansbury to play Miss Marple here, and would surround her with several big-name movie stars, just like they had with The Orient Express and The Nile. Edward Fox, Geraldine Chaplin, Kim Novak, Tony Curtis, Rock Hudson, 
and Elizabeth Taylor in her first film in three years. Guy Hamilton, who had directed four Bond pictures, Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and The Man with the Golden Gun, was hired to lead these actors, and the production was completed after ten weeks of shooting during the spring of 1980. And like the jazz singer, the film would gross about double its $5.5 million budget. But once you count in the million spent to advertise the film, create the film prints for theaters, it would not be profitable. After all of these Hail Marys failed to refill the company's coffers, AFD ceased as a producer and distributor of motion pictures in early 1981. Lord Grade would sell the rights to the films in production and development at AFD to Universal Studios, and when those films were finally released into theaters, they would be tagged as distributed by Universal Pictures and Associated Film Distributors Corporation. In an ironic twist of fate for a company that shut down because their films could not find an audience, several of the AFD movies sold off to Universal would find success, in theaters and or at the Academy Awards. However, The Legend of the Lone Ranger, the second AFD movie to be released by Universal in May 1981, would not be one of those movies. Another Western, Hard Country, starring Jan Michael Vincent and Kim Basinger, would hit theaters a month early and would quickly disappear. Now, there are many areas to place the blame on this epic disaster. Its star, the improbably named Clinton Spilsbury, was a handsome enough guy to play the hero in a Western. Imagine if Rick Springfield in 1981 had made a Western instead of becoming a rock star. He'd look a lot like Clinton Spilsbury as the Lone Ranger. Except Rick Springfield can actually act. Clinton Spilsbury could not. It also didn't help that in a 98 movie about the Lone Ranger... It took damn near 70 minutes for John Reed to put the damn mask on and become the Lone Ranger. Five-time Oscar-nominated cinematographer William A. Fraker sat in the director's chair for the third time on this one, and he would never direct another movie again. Clinton Spilsbury, who had never been in a movie before and was quite notoriously difficult during production, would never appear in another movie again. The other actors in the film, including Michael Horse, Christopher Lloyd, Jason Robards, and Richard Farnsworth, would continue to have careers, though Tom Laughlin, Billy Jack himself, and Merle Haggard, who had small roles in the film, would never appear on movie screens as actors again. The film did gross $12 million against its $18 million budget, but Lord Grade had sold off the television and cable rights to the movie for nearly $10 million dollars, so it wasn't that big a money loser. The Great Muppet Caper would be released in American theaters in June 1981, and in Great Britain a month later. This time, the Muppets traveled to London to stop a jewel heist. This would be the only Muppet movie directed by Jim Henson, and would feature cameo appearances by John Cleese, Peter Falk, Robert Morley, Peter Ustinov, and Jack Warden alongside the main stars Charles Grodin and Diana Rigg. While this film may have done only half the ticket sales of the Muppet movie, its $31 million box office haul would be nearly two and a half times its $14 million budget. The film is quite entertaining. It's a sequel to a very popular movie, 
and it got nearly universal good notices from critics. So why didn't it become a bigger film? Some say it was because the word caper appeared in the title, and American audiences were too uneducated to understand what a caper was. Now, those films produced by or in the AFD pipeline when they shut down that would go on to be hit films or Oscar winners or nominees, those films included On Golden Pond, which would become the second highest grossing film released in 1981 and would be nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director, and it would win three, Best Actor for Henry Fonda, Best Actress for Katherine Hepburn, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Then there was Frances, which would be nominated for Best Actress for Jessica Lange and Best Supporting Actress for Kim Stanley. Sophie's Choice, which would be, which would be nominated for five Academy Awards, winning Meryl Streep her second Oscar in four years, and would be Kevin Kline's feature film debut. The Dark Crystal, which despite its reputation as a bomb, was profitable from its initial theatrical release. Cross Creek, the adaptation of the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings memoir, which netted Oscar nominations for Rip Torn and Alfre Woodard in their respective supporting acting categories, plus Best Costume Design and Best Original Score. Tender Mercies, the movie for which Robert Duvall would win his only Oscar to date, which was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Director for Bruce Beresford, the only time he'd be nominated for a directing Oscar, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Song. There were other movies like John Schlesinger's truly atrocious comedy Honky Tonk Freeway, Bad Boys with Sean Penn, Evil Under the Sun, another Guy Hamilton-directed adaptation of an Agatha Christie novel, Slayground with Peter Coyote, and Barbarossa with Gary Busey and Willie Nelson, that 80s movie fans will probably remember, if not remember fondly. Thank you for listening. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about this show. Please help get the word out. Please post the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the film higher rankings, which helps the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The Film Jerk Podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Oh, it's all